Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Adventure took place before we moved to a new neighborhood, an incident that resulted in my first dance with celebrity. The two separated only by a shallow gully. An older neighbor kid convinced me to go down to the edge of the cemetery with him, where children were forbidden to go. On our way to the resting place of the dead, with a milkman. On days like that one, when the temperature flirted with 100 degrees and the humidity was unbearable, the gregarious milkman offered each of us a big chunk of ice. What flavor will it be today, boys? He asked, engaging in a bit of play acting. Cherry, Davy said, not missing a beat. Mr. Milkman grabbed a chunk of cherry ice, careful not to upset the bottles of white milk sparkling in the sunlight. Let me think, I said, trying to imagine how a real star like Lucy would say it. <laughs> I had grape yesterday, so today it will be lemon-lime. <laughs> Davy had already begun devouring his, sucking it with manic abandon. I chose to savor mine, licking it slowly, relishing the fruity flavor. Let's go swimming, Davy whispered in my ear. I swear I could smell cherries on my pal's breath. I didn't have a clue where this improv was going, but I played along, taking my cue from the leader. Last one there's a rotten egg, Davy teased, <clears throat> and he took off toward the cemetery as the milkman drove away in the opposite direction. I was not remote, remotely athletic, but with Davy as my inspiration, my otherwise uncoordinated body took flight. I got close enough to him to actually see drops of sweat dripping from his body. Or was it melting ice from his treat? The smell of perspiration had replaced the smell of cherries. I was clutching my ice, knowing I'd need to cool myself down when we made it to the finish line. We arrived at our destination, saturated with sweat. Davy ripped off his shirt and rubbed his chest with what remained of his hunk of ice. Take your shirt off, he ordered as he playfully stuck what remained of his ice down the back of my shorts. <clears throat> Far less secure than Davy, I tried to match his level of intensity by pulling my shirt off as fast as I could while he removed his socks and tennis shoes. No shoes allowed in the pool, he said. <laughs> Suddenly, it dawned on me. We were going to swim in the gully that separated the cemetery where we weren't allowed and the street where we were allowed. No one had said anything about the territory that was in between. Should I dive? Davy asked upon arrival at the forbidden ground. Head first. You're nuts, I said, taking off my shoes and socks. <clears throat> he jumped, 
And then he splashed me with imaginary water. Come in, come on in. The water's fine. Trying not to look too girly, I jumped. The ice melting in my ass crack provided some impetus. <laughs> You'll fall on your butt, the psychiatrist had warned. Remember? Our pool was about three feet deep. Except for the sight of our heads bobbing up and down, our clandestine activities were obscured from nosy neighbors. Ever swim in the nude, he asked. And then, moving almost in slow motion, he began taking off his plaid shorts. The pool had become something else now. A nightclub stage? A hotel room? As he slowly took one leg out of his shorts and then the other, he stood directly across from me, looking me in the eyes, daring me to follow. I unzipped my pants, certain that everyone on the block could hear the sound of the zipper as I pulled it down. <clears throat> we stood in our underpants as white as milk, staring at each other. Am I hard? Is he? On the count of three, he whispered. One. I felt as if I was losing consciousness, like I was being transported into another world, a foreign world where another boy accepted me. Two. Yep, I was hard. <clears throat> as hard as ice. As hot as fire. Three. He was hard too. <clears throat> Once we got naked, we were back in the pool, splashing and laughing. Laughing loud. Loud enough to wake the dead. And alert the neighbors. The only sound that could be heard above our ecstatic gales of laughter was the wail of a siren, louder and louder as it got closer and closer. The screeching of tires finally brought us back to the planet as we hurriedly grabbed for our clothes. Don't get dressed on our account, boys. One of the huge cops shouted, looming above us. Then, along with his equally burly partner, he began laughing at us, insinuating laughter, loaded with accusations. What will your parents have to say about their little naked jaybirds? The biggest and the meanest one said. I swore I heard jailbirds. <laughs> one of the cops escorted me home. The other escorted Davy. And now I would like to introduce Sharon Barr. I just wanted to hear more about the naked and the <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa. All right. Okay, this is chapter twenty-two. Darling. <laughs> my director said, pulling me aside for a private consultation. You need to lose about 10 pounds of baby fat before we open. <laughs> this bit of direction, delivered by off-Broadway wunderkind Tom Ion, was one of the many details that would distinguish the dirtiest show in town from my previous theatrical outings. For starters, it was the first time a director called me darling. <laughs> With his superior intellect and severe sense of humor, Ian was an oddball whose sophistication was tempered by a pervasive sweetness. Darling, he would say, referencing a bygone time when starlets were discovered at soda fountains. You're my discovery. <laughs> After a grueling rehearsal schedule that included thousands upon thousands of sit-ups, I made my L.A. stage debut in the West Coast premiere of Dirtiest Show, written and directed by Tom Ion. 
The baby fat he referred to was bloat, the result of guzzling gallons of white wine during my first eight months in LA. It was the autumn of Hollywood in 1971, and Rock Hudson was starring in Macmillan and Wife. Dick Sargent was playing Darren Stevens opposite Elizabeth Montgomery on Bewitched. And Robert Reed was playing the dad on The Brady Bunch. Three gay men who were playing husbands. <laughs> Paul Lind was camping it up on the Hollywood squares, and Alan Seuss often appeared in drag on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. Little did I realize then that I would eventually meet all of them. My connection to the entertainment capital of the world was the reluctant Best Actress nominated Carrie Snodgrass, Diary of a Mad Housewife, a Goodman alum, and Tom Racina's friend. Carrie introduced Racina to her agent, the powerful Stan Kamen of the William Morris Agency. Racina, in turn, set up a meeting for me with Kamen a few days after I arrived in LA. In anticipation of my meeting, the advice I received was confusing. Butch it up, but wear tight jeans. <laughs> seemed to be the general tip. <laughs> I took direction well. With mi within minutes of meeting the handsome, no-nonsense Cayman, he was on the phone to Monique James, head of casting at Universal. During the final days of the old studio system, Universal was the only remaining studio where one could be hired as a contract player, the best possible scenario for a 21-year-old fresh out of acting school. Monique came and cooed, oozing high-voltage Hollywood charm, surveying me from head to toe. I've got a handsome kid here who just graduated from Goodman. Can you see him? A few weeks later, I performed a scene for James, playing a young Will Shakespeare. She immediately sent me to Reuben Cannon, who was casting a part I was right for in an upcoming episode of Ironside. The word got back to Cayman that my, that my work was too theatrical, but James wanted to see me do another scene. While theatrical was probably an accurate description, considering I'd just completed three years at a school they t where they taught stage acting, I also think it euphemistically carried a whiff of homophobia. James, a lesbian, certainly knew that being sent by Cayman was a clue to my probable gayness. When Tom dropped me off at the Ivar Theater in the heart of Hollywood, if Hollywood has a heart, <laughs> on the opening night of Dirtiest Show, 10 pounds lighter, I was greeted with the explosion of flashbulbs shooting from the paparazzi's camera. It was all at once shocking, seductive, and disconcerting. I hadn't even stepped on stage and they were clamoring to get a photo. The opening night audience include Cass Elliott of the Mamas and the Papas, manager extraordinaire Alan Carr, a I almost said he was a transsexual, no, um, transsexual author Christine Jorgensen, poet Rod McEwen, and a host of agents, casting directors, and press people. Carr introduced himself and insisted that we go to lunch. He was impressed with my knowledge of Anne Margaret, his star client, whose career he had resurrected. 
Well, certainly tame by today's standards. The Dirtiest Show was decidedly an edgy piece of theater in 1972. Not only did the cast appear sans costume throughout the evening, but the sketch material celebrated sexuality of every stripe while condemning pollution and war. Perhaps not Brechtian in breadth, but the show had some bite. As an actor, I had never felt so free or authentic. Forget three years of sense memory exercises in Shakespeare classes. <laughs> At long last, I was given permission to use myself, including my gay self, on stage. Well, we certainly camped it up in the Goodman's Children's Theater, we were essentially employing the stereotypical clown routine, the gay version of Uncle Tom. In Dirtiest Show, we were employing ourselves, including our bodies. This is me, motherfuckers, like it or not. <laughs> Heightening the exhilaration was the instant celebrity status the performers were awarded. The truth, of course, was that the young and sexed up cast members were being sought, of, sought as much for their fuckability as for their thespian abilities. I followed up with Carr and he did invite me to go, to go to lunch at Green Cafe, a magnet for industry types, many of whom were screamingly gay. The Green Cafe was legendary in no small part because of Carr's largesse. Carr's flamboyance endeared him to the Hollywood community probably because he was overweight and not conventionally attractive. His uncompromising gayness played well and he knew it. On and off screen, queers were allowed to be court jesters as long as they never showed their balls. Holding court, court uh, Carr introduced me to his all-male table of cohorts. I'd like you to meet Michael Kearns, he said in a voice that could be heard above the considerable buzz of the outdoor patio and the traffic sounds of San Vicente Boulevard, a tall David Cassidy. <laughs> Okay. It was a reference to my mane of shoulder-length hair, something Anne-Margaret herself commented on when I met her a few weeks later at Carr's birthday party, also held at the trendy Green Cafe. I love your hair. <laughs> the sex kitten purred. It was the beginning of an enduring friendship with a Hollywood goddess who was also a complex and caring woman. While I acknowledged while I was acknowledged for my onstage abilities as, as a performer, my offstage reputation as a hard-drinking and sexually available party boy was gaining considerably more momentum. Non-stop parties held in the Hollywood Hills, digs of the gay, rich and famous, inevitably led to a growing list of sexual conquests. In many instances, the real party action took place in the various secret rooms away from the main event. At one of these orgies, <laughs> <laughs> Masquerading as a party, I found myself smoking dope with a 60s television heartthrob whose career had been derailed after more than one public sex arrest. He was wearing a bright red caftan, popularized by the Zaftik car, which conveniently provided easy access, especially since he'd apparently left his underpants at home. <laughs> I would later have a private assignation with the notoriously well-hung hunk, who was one of the first stars to take it all off for Playgirl. Well, almost all. The jet black hairpiece remained firmly attached. Our sex date took place in an art studio on his estate. In the midst of easels and mundane artwork, there was a cot strategically placed below a wall adorned with the nude shots from, the play, from Playgirl. 
multiple images of his big schlong, presumably intended to reinforce the real thing, proved more, <laughs> proved more comedic than erotic. This would, not, this would not be the only time I'd have trouble getting it up with a big, in more ways than one, star. While fucking me, he was looking at his images of, on the wall. <laughs> oblivious to my degree of hardness or softness. After he came, which was punctuated by the obligatory grunts and groans of a less than nuanced television actor, he, <laughs> he hopped up and headed for the bathroom. <laughs> How was it? He asked, <laughs> cocksure as he strode across the room. Uh, okay. <laughs> I said, telling the truth. I'll never forget the side of his back stiffening, almost as if he'd been shot from behind. He couldn't wait to get me out of his art studio. <gasps> and now I'd like to introduce... <laughs> Thank you. And now I'd like to introduce John McLaughlin. Make me follow Sharon Barr? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Chapter 32. Mr. Hudson is suffering from anorexia nervosa. Ross Hunter lied to the media, standing in the shadows of the ailing actor's estate. That announcement, made with a straight face, as it were, sent shockwaves through my system, giving birth to my role as an activist. The degree of anger I experienced would motivate me for years to come. Hunter was the director of Rock's greatest romps with Doris Day, Pillow Talk, Lover Come Back, and obviously took his job to make Hudson believably heterosexual on screen and off with somber seriousness. While Hudson lay dying of AIDS, which had been widely reported, Hunter pathetically, pathetically continued to attempt covering up for his gay leading man. Every homophobic act that had been perpetrated upon Hollywood was summed up by Hunter's refusal to, to divulge the truth. Two truths, in fact. Hudson was gay and dying of AIDS. Like the young son who has to deliver the news of his diagnosis as well as his sexual orientation, this was a double whammy that Hollywood would be forced to acknowledge. But there was resistance, and not only from the duplicitous Ross Hunter. The media wanted a response from Hollywood's openly gay actor. I vociferously castigated Hollywood on ABC's Nightline while offering a somewhat softer analysis to People magazine. Quote, I have this fantasy. Tomorrow they discover a cure for AIDS and Hudson recovers. I wonder, would he be ostracized from the business? Would he be relegated to playing screaming queens? Or would he simply be allowed to continue his career as an openly gay actor? Would he simply be respected? My responses to Hudson's death didn't end there. Yes, I was angry that his handlers couldn't dignify his demise by telling the truth. In the midst of Ross Hunter's denials, there were re reported deathbed acts of valor, which were obvious sound bites fabricated by the image makers. The feeling that eclipsed all of the others was a deep sorrow. I flash back to our brief dance. Hudson's life was a tragic one, played out in an atmosphere that obliterated much of his authentic self. I pray that his death would not be in vain. 
Oozing with queer authenticity, actors David Stebbins and Joe Frazier had fallen crazily in love when they both appeared in Chelsea's Night Sweat in Ranson's Warren. Our shared links to both those playwrights would cement our bond. When I read Chelsea's Jerker for the first time, I was paralyzed by the time I reached the final scene. Never had I experienced such a reaction to a piece of theater. I was sitting outside in the sunshine on a lounge chair, and as I closed the script and attempted to stand up, I couldn't. It was as if I had been frozen in an abyss of emotion. The idea of Joe and David playing the characters who fall in love over long-distance lines was ignited to some extent by their offstage chemistry. Not only, not only were they both in their 30s and hot, but thank God they could act. I had begun touring in Dream Man, thanks to Rebecca. I had a gig in Atlanta. Not only would I perform the role of the phone hustler, I would open the evening playing the tortured bartender John in Pickett's Bathhouse Benediction. While in the process of studying the new role that I was taking on, I received word that my father had died. The nurse I spoke to told me that during his final days, he would watch the television and identify every male actor who appeared on the screen as his son. There's Mike, he'd say, that's my son. It didn't, didn't matter what the TV actors looked like. He saw me in every one of them. That's my boy. He'd tell everyone within earshot. The irony of his mania, considered, considering that he had never once come to see me in a play, was strangely comforting. In the end, he did know that I existed, confirmed by multiple versions of me visiting him as he lay dying. Determined not to let the freshness of my feelings fade, I rushed to the theater after getting the news. John, the character I was about to play, was also dealing with the death of his father, so I would explore John's feelings while simultaneously dealing with my own. Life marries art. Joe and David, along with Pickett, came with me to Atlanta, and the first reading of Jerker took place in Rebecca's backyard. This was quite a trajectory from the theatrics I had concocted in the backyard of my childhood. To suggest that the play was shocking was only part of the larger context. The title not only referred to the dirty, uh, the dirty talk, the dirty scenes of mass. The title not only referred to the dirty talk scenes of masturbation, but also subliminally defined the play's genre, tearjerker. Response to the raw reading was uncommonly enthusiastic, confirming that Joe and David were destined to create the roles of the star-crossed lovers. Before leaving Atlanta, I was asked to speak at a gay church that was doing a tribute to Atlantans who had died of AIDS. I remembered that John Austin, my high school hero, lived in Atlanta and not very long into the list, somewhere between Adams and Ayers, I heard his name, John Austin. I knew it was him. I thought back to the summer, several years after we had graduated from high school, when I ran into John in a gay bar. The teenage boy who had played the middle-aged man with an imaginary rabbit and I wound up fucking like bunnies <laughs> on a waterbed, releasing all the pent-up feelings we'd been avoiding. Now he was dead, along with too many others. I wish I could have kissed him goodbye. I wish I could have kissed all of them goodbye. Everyone whose name was, on the, was read from the endless list that I would hear during the next 35 years. Jerker premiered at the Celebration Theater, a dilapidated space that was nonetheless devoted to producing gay work. The play is comprised of 20 phone calls, switching imperceptibly from comedy to tragedy. In the final moments of the play, the character played by Joe doesn't answer the phone. 
In our production, we had purchased the perfect blanket to represent the character's inner life, contrasting with his overt butchness. It was silvery and satin, sensual without being girly. I directed Joe to spread the blanket out, almost like a shroud when he exited, as the phone calls from David's character became more desperate and more frequent. Finally, as David hears that the number you have called is no longer in service, confirming the death of his long-distance lover, all that's left in Joe's room is the silver blanket, shimmering in a pool of light. Slow fade as David convulses in anguish. As often was the case with my endeavors, we did a live broadcast from PF, P, uh, KFPK, KPFK in Pacifica that included several excerpts from the play. Little did we realize that we would, we would be responsible for altering the course of radio history. Ladies and gentlemen, Dale Rowell. Chapter 49. Eric chose to die the following day. Tia and I spent a few days in Idlewild as I tried to make sense of his death, not only for her sake, but for mine. I placed him, his spirit, if you will, in nature. Eric is in the clouds. He's in the mountain rocks and the pine trees, I told her. He's in the sunshine in the morning and the moonshine at night. This made perfect sense to a kid with Tia's vivid imagination. A week or so after he died, we celebrated his life on the beach in his beloved Santa Barbara, where dozens of golden helium balloons were released in his memory. See, Tia said, covered with sand, the balloons know Eric is in the clouds. <laughs> a few days later, an envelope arrived containing the document from my attorney, confirming the imminent adoption of Tia Catherine Kearns. This recurring pattern of extreme highs and extreme lows, always in tandem, must be imprinted on everyone's life, I figured. <laughs> you simply aren't given entree to one without the other, are you? Because the adoption celebration would be a big extravaganza, I planned a low-key, just kidding, birthday party. <laughs> Several of our family members rented a suite of rooms at the Disneyland Hotel, and although the atmosphere was clouded by the death of Princess Diana, our little princess had a smashing third birthday fete. The formal adoption took place on Friday, September 5th, 1997, in the same building where the interminable legal maneuvering had played out. My dear, dear friends, Dale Rowell and Joe Gill stood at our side. I held Tia in my arms. Sitcom happy, the judge cracked jokes and appeared to relish every minute of this joyous occasion. As he spelled out my obligations and responsibilities as a father, I was unable to contain the tears. Tears that had been building up for nearly three years. I would not save this watershed for the stage, goddammit. <clears throat> Let him flow, daddy. <laughs> Let him flow, daddy-o. <laughs> The judge's final declaration that this little girl was, finally, my daughter, carried with it a symbolic resolution that represented a lifelong struggle to overcome prejudice, ignorance, and my own self-doubt. In that stunning moment, 
Everything I had fought for coalesced and I felt vindicated. The following day, Nearly 100 people gathered for a blissed-out bash on a grassy hill above the merry-go-round in Griffith Park, amidst hundreds of balloons emblazoned with her name, Tia Kearns. A photo of her taken on that day serves as a pure representation of who she was in that moment. Bare brown arms stretched around her neck, hugging herself. She is a testament to opposites charismatic and withdrawn, fierce and frail. She is part survivor and part victim. Her eyes project intelligence and defiance. Her sturdy little body, wrapped in a sleeveless pink dress dotted with purple flowers, begs to be held but is poised for combat. <laughs> this is my girl. <laughs> Who braided her hair, someone asked. Uh, I did, I answered. <laughs> Believe me when I say that our roots have entwined and our bond is thicker than blood. She is my daughter and I am her daddy. Now, Miss Kearns is not going to like what I'm going to do. <laughs> but I just had to bring this to show you this girl when she was a baby. She is... I'm going to pass this around. She was the cutest girl in the world. I'll pass it around. <laughs> um, as you know, most of you know, she has grown into a remarkable young woman, and she is as beautiful inside as she is on the outside. So without further ado, I give you our Tia Catherine Kearns. Wow, okay, hi. Uh, chapter 72. Behind the counter at the DMV of Motor Vehicles, where Tia is applying for her driver's permit, the black woman with stern glasses teetering on her nose scans the paperwork we've handed her and then looks up at the two of us. Where's the mother, she asks. There is no mother, I say. She looks positively baffled. What's the mother's name, she persists, frowning, taking her glasses off to see us more clearly. There is no mother, I repeat, as chipper as hell. <laughs> she returns to the application for as it, she returns the application form as it might hold the answer, then she, get, then she glares at me as if I've done something terribly wrong. So, you're the guardian? No, I am not the guardian, I'm her father. Her discerning eyes move from me back to the paperwork, the oversized glasses put back in place. I guess it'll be all right. <laughs> it's been more than all right, I say, smiling. And now, um, I'd like to introduce my dad. Um, he, I don't know what to say. Um, <laughs> he's sort of, he's amazing and I'm so proud of him and he is the best dad that anyone could ever have and I love you.
Thank you so much. Um, in my case, it doesn't take only a village. It takes a 70s disco at 2 a.m. <laughs> uh, but I really do want to thank all of you. Uh, my, I have a support system that I would say uh, vies anyone's. And um, I would not have been able to write this book. I would not be able to raise this child uh, without the support system that I have, which is really an extraordinary thing. So I'm going to read the preface to the book. During my parents' divorce proceedings, zoom in on St. Louis, Missouri, mid-50s, my father hired a private investigator as if this was some film noir being played out. While he knew that the copious records of his mental instability would keep him from gaining custody, his devious plan was to keep my mother from getting the two boys, my brother and me, whom he had paid scant attention to during their marriage. In an attempt to prove she was unfit, he hired a private investigator to follow her every move, documenting a laundry list of liaisons with other men. After the incontestable evidence of mommy's indiscretion was presented, my, my father's lawyer, drunk with power, upped the ante by painting a portrait of my mother as being physically abusive. She beat me with her shoe, my father tearfully told the judge during the courtroom soap opera, using the high heel as a weapon. She was a petite five foot two. He was a strapping six foot two. My mother could not contain herself. Infidelities proven, but she did not batter my dad. Your honor, she said, interrupting the proceedings and pointing at her soon-to-be ex, why is this man lying? The truth is bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> it became the title of my first one-person show, which depicted my splintered childhood family life in St. Louis and encompassed my worldwide act as the author of The Happy Hustler, a book that I did not write. In retrospect, and that's a lot of what an autobiography is, I realized that my life is juicier than The Happy Hustlers. In other words, the truth is bad enough, honey. <laughs> While I am completely culpable for the hustler hoax, there are many untruths about me that continue to float about. This book will, I hope, fully dispel them. I did not get fired from the Waltons because I'm gay. I did not sleep with Rock Hudson. We were standing the entire time wide awake. <laughs> And I'm very much alive, even though, according to a book published in 2001 titled Celebrities in L.A. Cemeteries, had me interred in Rosedale Cemetery having died of AIDS. One of my friends cracked, well, at least they think you're a celebrity. <laughs> Throughout my life, I have been fixated on playing many roles, including celebrity, but I've concentrated on the important ones in the three acts of my book. 
actor, activist, artist, and most significantly, father. That doesn't mean to suggest I camouflage the truth that's bad enough. The drugs, the unconscious sex, the plundering hustling. I have been writing this book for many years, and while it's intended to entertain, being an entertainer is one of my life roles, it is also a testament to the creation of a family against insuperable odds. As the chapters of The Truth of Is Bad Enough, What Became of the Happy Hustler coalesced, and as I've aged, I've assessed what I feel is truly important in the life of a human being, and that is being part of a family. What kind of family does it matter? A theater family, an extended family, or a 12-step program family? I do not think my parents nurtured a healthy family, and I took that as a cue to demonize them. It wasn't until I stepped back that I began to see the many positive things there are to say about both my father and my mother, who in her raging pronouncement gave me the book's title. My parents were not parents in the way that I try to be a parent, but they were flesh and blood mortals who inherited their own wounds of dysfunction. The catalyst for my late-in-life transformation was my daughter. She was named by her mother and then abandoned at the hospital where she was born prematurely with crack cocaine in her system. But as I re reconciled my family history, Tia was recoiling from hers. It wasn't until I finished this book that Tia decided to empower herself by changing her name. Perhaps her decision was instigated by the staggeringly insensitive requests she had received from her mother to be her friend on Facebook. I use the quotes around the word mother and friend because it is Tia's intent to abandon her mother in the same way she was abandoned, and ridding herself of that name is part of the undertaking. My 17-year-old daughter has chosen her middle name, Catherine, which I gave her in honor of my grandmother on my father's side, the only woman who consistently illuminated my orbit as a child. In fact, I believe her saintliness saved me. Half of the team that produced my father deserves my uncomplicated devotion. And that particular goodness is something that my daughter Catherine possesses, a diligent dedication to treating all people with dignity and respect due to them. To think that the two people I have loved most in my life share the same name. When I started writing The Truth is Bad Enough, I had no idea that it could possibly have a happy ending. Even though it will be labeled an autobiography, the book seems to commingle so many other genres. A Hollywood book, an AIDS book, an adoption story, a tale of survival, and on and on. But not until I wrote the last pages of The Truth is Bad Enough did I realize that the book, when distilled, is a love story. A love story with a happy ending. And no matter how I die, I have learned life's paramount lesson, to love and be loved no matter what convention might dictate. Thank you.
It's like my whole life is here. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.